Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Balaam Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I am a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Thanks for joining us today. When Bela and I were both on the faculty of Clarkson University, we'd have lots of interesting conversations about how two of our favorite topics, innovation and entrepreneurship, have been constantly evolving. We do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. But about two years ago, I moved to Germany, and shortly thereafter, Bela retired. Bela had the idea to continue these conversations in the form of a, of a podcast. I was highly skeptical at first, but we've now done over 70 episodes, and we've have a, had a blast, haven't we, Bela? We sure have, Mike. And we invite our listeners to join us each week as we talk with interesting entrepreneurs to share their stories and ideas. Our goal is to bring you individuals who have taken the unconventional path to find happiness in life and at work. One of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. Our guests have included coffee roasters, software developers, business consultants, and restaurant owners. We want their stories to inspire you to say, hey, I can do that, and then, just maybe, give you a push to start your own entrepreneurial adventure. Before we begin, we'd like to share with you that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know them well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding business startups down the path to success, and we thank them for their continued support of the Unconventional Path podcast. And next up, today's guest is Tom Rosecrans, founder of Rocksport. Hello, listeners. Bela here. And today, I'm here with Tom Rosencrantz. Uh, he has an interesting, interesting background, and he founded a business called Rocksport. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks, Bill. So could you explain to our listeners what Rocksport is? Rocksport is an indoor rock climbing gym, and uh, it's a relatively new enterprise here in the United States. The first commercial climbing gym started in 1987 on the West Coast. And uh, since then, it's grown to the point where there are over 500 of these indoor climbing gyms all over the United States. Every large city has them, even New Orleans and Orlando, Florida, and Melbourne, Florida, you know, even flatland places, middle of Kansas, yeah. there's climbing gyms now. Uh, some of them have been creatively put into grain silos or other unused uh, large buildings. Uh, since that's happened, uh, a lot of those unused buildings have kind of disappeared off of the market, and so people are building more purpose-built climbing gyms. And this is our third climbing gym, and it, I'm informed by my wife that it's going to be my last. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that rock sport, indoor rock climbing, and we, we do some other fitness-oriented uh, activities like yoga so that kind of coincides with, uh, we call it climbing vertical yoga anyway, mm -hmm. so it kind of fits hand in glove. Okay. So um, for people who may not be familiar with what a climbing gym is, what do people do in a climbing gym? <laughs> uh, we try to replicate what's outside, uh, but in a safer, more controlled environment. So uh, basically there are these blobs of plastic that are bolted to the wall, uh, that can be changed on a regular basis, and we make we make paths for challenging people to get from the bottom to the top without falling off. And you're you're harnessed in and you're roped in so that the consequences are minimal if you've followed all the directions all the way along. So if I want to go climb some rock face in Yosemite, I can come to one of these indoor gyms and sort of get some uh, basic skills, et cetera, to help prepare me for something like that. Yes. Yeah, so going to Yosemite is kind of a, quite a few steps up, but you get your start in a gym. Uh, I, I saw a talk by Tommy Caldwell, who climbed one of the more difficult 
roots recently called the Don Wall, and his the name of his show was uh, Start Small but Dream Big, and it was his story of starting on the side of his barn as a very young man and eventually climbing the hardest route on El Cap mm-hmm. over the periods of over the period of years, uh, and you know he replicated various parts of that climb on the side of his barn and practice it so that when he was a thousand feet off of the ground he could launch himself at that and be successful yeah yeah so what what type of people come to a a climbing gym like this oh gosh (laughs) it's almost like a bar we have (laughs) we have we have the full range uh i turn your regulars yeah well you have the like the young hip crowd it's kind of a young hip enterprise so you know, people get drawn to that. But, you know, we have older folk. I, I turned 70 this coming year, so uh, I'm still throwing myself at it in a in a declining way, but still pretty good, I guess. Um, you know, we have moms. We have kids. We have grandparents. We have grandparents bringing kids. Uh, you know, you got the full gamut. Mm-hmm. Um and you do programs for them, like sort of structured programs for folks? Yes, we have climbing teams from every age from 5 to uh, 18, and then they kind of disappear during college. The, you know, the, the locals disappear for college, but they come back on the vacations, and they, you know, they take their skills that they learn here, and they take them to college, or they take them to other, other places in the United States or Europe. So when you say teams, is this a competitive sport that one can be in? Yes, it is. Um, our team, we give them the option. They can either choose to compete or not, and they would compete in the northeastern region of the United States. And now that it's an Olympic sport, it's become very, very programmed in terms of, you know, the steps you need to take to advance to, like, the United States Olympic team, just like any other sport, like gymnastics or okay. anything else. Okay. So um, it sounds like this has been a, a, a sport that's been growing. Like you said, started on the West Coast, like many of these types of things do. And so how long have you been in, in this sort of uh, indoor climbing uh, enterprise? <laughs> uh, I started in 1992, and I, I went on an expedition to the Himalayas, and two of the guys who were on that expedition uh, owned a gym that they had just started up in Glens Falls behind the Inside Edge. And uh, it was an old Quonset hut. It was only about maybe 30 feet tall at the tallest at the, in, in the middle. Um, but they started this gym, and I got involved with that in terms of, you know, I became a member. And, and I said, man, they beat me to this. I, this would be something I'd like to do. Well, on this expedition, uh, one guy said, I, I'm going to give you my shares because I'm not interested in this anymore. And... Uh, when we came back from the Himalayas, we found out that the gym was running without insurance. There was a bunch of weird things that were going on. So when he said he's giving you his shares, he was basically transferring his liabilities to you. <laughs> he was, yes, <laughs> yes. We didn't know that till we poked under all the rocks when we got back. Um, long story short, in December of 1992, I took over ownership of the gym, and from then until now we've gone from that facility to a handmade facility at the sports page in an old barn uh, that I you know I drove every screw and <laughs> put every bolt in and uh, we outgrew that place uh, it, I don't know if you remember that place I do yeah, yeah. I, that's where uh, I first started to climb it was it was very small it had 14 rope station you could crawl across you could climb across the roof um, you could even belay off the toilet because we had the outside wall of the john uh, with holds and climbing. Yeah. So it was it was kind of an amazing place, and it created a community that just continued to grow. And that I saw the opportunity to say, hey, you know, maybe we should take the next step. So, in uh, in that ill-fated I, sh- I shouldn't say ill-fated in that wonderful trip to the Himalayas. Did you just have, like, uh, inspiration to say, I'd like to do this business? Or sort of what's, what sort of drove you to say, I, I want to do that? Uh, there was no driving force. So it, it kind of came out of the blue with, you know, I, I, I would have loved to have done it ahead of those guys. But I was, you know, I was teaching. I had a young family. So uh, it wasn't in the cards. But 
I didn't think I was ever going to go to the Himalayas either, and all of a sudden that got thrown in my lap. And then all of a sudden, you know, the climbing gym pretty much got thrown in my lap as well. And I ran it part-time as, you know, teaching during the day and running that at night. Yeah, so this is sort of what nowadays is often called a side hustle, <laughs> right? So that's uh, how it started, at least. Yeah. So you were a, a high school teacher? High school teacher at Queensbury. Um, and that was your full-time job? That, that was my full-time gig. And yeah. then, the, you know, I guess you could call it a hobby. We tried running it with volunteer staff, and that was a miserable experience. Mm. Um, and not having any business background it was kind of a lot of trial by error and more error than yes and trials and and so you must be an avid climber if you went climbing in himalayas uh yeah yeah kind of defines my life in in many ways and there are some good and bad to that certainly but uh, i've kind of dialed it into the point where my wife and I when we travel now we we spend half a day climbing at a cliff and it has to have some sort of scenic uh, uh, you know good points to it and then in the afternoon we go someplace else that she wants to go to an art gallery so we you know we travel all over Europe we've been to Asia um, and we can find climbing everywhere either indoors or out and we climb and we find all the other things that we love to do. Is it is it an, an expensive sport to get involved in? Uh, I like to compare it to skiing. So if you look at the cost, and I, I'm not going to get into snowboarding, but I'm going to talk skiing. But you know, you look at a pair of skis and a pair of boots and a pair of bindings. You've got a pretty sizable uh, investment for the price of your ski boots. You can buy everything you possibly could need for climbing uh, indoors and for a lot of the outdoor activities as well. And if you're climbing, you can climb 365 days a year, whereas skiing, you got maybe three months or four months, unless you go to the Southern Hemisphere, you can ski in the off season. So it's uh, it's relatively inexpensive when I look at some of the other sports. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's good news, right? Yeah, for, yeah absolutely. For, for folks. And, and, and so when people come to the, the to rock sport here to climb for a day, how much does that cost? I mean, lift tickets for a ski area, if we use that analogy, like <laughs> over 100 bucks. You go to Killington, I think it's 130 or something, <laughs> something like that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And then that's for eight hours, if you can ski for eight hours. Uh, it costs uh, $17 for a day pass here. If you have your own gear, it costs you a little less than 25 if if you need to rent a harness mm-hmm. and shoes. And... You know, there's three different things, three different climbing activities you can do here. There's the bouldering where you only need a pair of shoes and you don't wear a harness and you climb low, really hard things close to the ground. And those really hard routes close to the ground are are puzzles. They're physical and mental puzzles that you have to kind of work through. And that's kind of the new up and coming. It's kind of like snowboarding and skiing. You'll hear me refer back to skiing a lot in this. And that's kind of the new hip thing because it's it's very social. So you'll see that pile of kids sitting over there in the bouldering area, and each guy will, or girl will throw themselves at their problems, and you know they'll talk it through and how to how to solve the problems. And then there's rope climbing, top rope climbing, where you're you know the rope goes to the top of the wall and then back down, so that if you fall off, there's no 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 real consequences. And then there's lead climbing, which is kind of like what you do outside where the rope. And both climbers start on the ground, and you you trail the rope up, clipping in the protection as you climb up. Mm-hmm. So you have all three of those activities you can do here. Now, fifteen or seventeen dollars a day sounds really reasonable to me. And if I put my businessman hat on, I'd say you're not charging enough. <laughs> so what's what sort of rationale do, do you think about to sort how of did, come up with pricing? Because I think pricing is always one of the interesting topics in any business, right? right. How do you price your product or your service? Right. Isn't the, the business uh, adage uh, charge as much as you can with a straight face and practice your straight face or something? <laughs> something like something, that, yeah. yeah. Go to yeah. actor's school to practice your straight face. Um, there's a couple things. You know, we do have competition. Um, Mm-hmm. Not other climbing gyms, but other activities. And I think in the United States, at least in the, the backwaters, and I consider the Adirondacks a little bit of a backwater, um, 
there's a feeling that climbing is kind of the lunatic fringe. Um, you know, it's a dangerous thing that, you know, parents don't want their kids getting involved with. You know, I, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and I remember when skiing was a dangerous, mm-hmm. a dangerous activity, and only crazy guys skied, and professional athletes had no skiing uh, clauses written into their contracts because, you know, the equipment wasn't that good, broken legs were common, and uh, as a somewhere along the line the light switched on in the ski areas and they said why don't we attract families and you know so the equipment got better releasable bindings got got really good and all of a sudden it wasn't such a dangerous thing and it became a family activity and you know if you go to europe today climbing is an accepted activity for all families yeah and I see you guys doing that here because I've, I've been here on Saturdays or Sundays, and there's birthday parties here, right? So clearly you got seven, eight, 10, 15 year old kids coming in here, or if they're younger, like my granddaughters climb. Yeah. yeah. Right? And, you know, we never thought, you know, five to seven year olds are going to be too afraid, they're going to be too. And then we started a program called Pebble Crushers, and we found that they were rocking it. I right, mean, right. It's their I parents mean, that are afraid. Right. <laughs> and part of it's, you know, you think that there's no fear in them, but. They do have quite a bit of fear, and, and a lot of them, it's, it's a long process for them to eventually make it to the top of the wall. But, um, you know, that journey is, is one of self-discovery, and uh, it, it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. So is there an uh, indoor rock climbing owner's association? Uh, there's a climbing wall association, and it, it came about because for insurance reasons. We were kind of lumped in with amusement parks. And in case you don't know this, amusement parks are very dangerous places. And our insurance premiums were high, and we couldn't understand why this was the case because we take, you know, great length. We go to great lengths to make sure things are safe, although safe is a four-letter word in the climbing community. We make it as safe as we possibly can. So we formed an association, and we got the insurance companies behind us to understand what we do and how we do it. You know, our application process is very long. We have to detail how we teach things and all that so that they feel at ease with how we do things. And our insurance rate went way down, and then this is just kind of snowballed into now every year they have a, a conference where we talk about new ideas and new things. And So there is sort of a place for, for folks who are in this industry to kind of get together occasionally and sort of share ideas and work together. We like to drink, we like to drink beer together and climb together and and climb. (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's held out on the front range in Colorado and in a great place. And, you know, the, you know, people from around the world come to this conference, you know, people who are starting out their climbing wall, uh, experience industry and, uh, they find out what the new ideas are and where to go. Do you, get, do you find most of the owners are also avid climbers? Do those things kind of go together? <clears throat> that I can't say. I know a lot of them are. Yeah. A lot of my friends from the Northeast that I know, gym owners from the Northeast, are. Um, you know, because the ski, it's interesting, the ski industry used to be that way, right? In the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the, most of the folks who owned ski areas were also very avid skiers. And that's really changed now. Now there's big corporations that own a a lot of them, etc. So it's <laughs> yeah. going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. Same thing. Same thing is happening in the climbing wall. There's, you know, the franchises and oh, okay. you know groups of of climbing gyms are are banding together and they're forming big conglomerates. And so it is going on. It, it right? is going on. Yeah. And it's and it's business driven, not love of climbing. Yes. Yes. Well, that's that's certainly not unusual for as industries mature, as business areas mature, uh, uh, other people start seeing uh, opportunity there and rolling things up, consolidating them. I mean, we've seen that happen in lots of industries, the ski industry for sure. Yeah. So what do you think the future is for this industry? Well, that was a conversation I had uh, last summer. I went to two summers ago. I went to Finland. I talked with a guy who owns a bunch of gyms in Finland. And my uh, stepson was getting married to a Finnish girl. We were there for a wedding, and I kind of made it a business trip, too. So I hooked up with this guy, and uh, we talked about at length about where, the, where it's going. And, you know, here I have this brand-new building, 10,000 square feet, 
state-of-the-art climbing wall and we're still one of the smallest gyms in the United States if not the world I mean it's we're tiny if it's if you're talking about a climbing gym and not just a bouldering gym we're tiny there are over wow 50 to 60,000 square foot building climbing gyms they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and some of them you can take a virtual tour and it's like a uh, a rabbit warren where you got corridors of bouldering things and you wind your way through the through the building it, it and it's incredibly fun looking sure yeah wow <coughs> so do you think you think the trend will be bigger 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 it's, it's just like the skier is, mm-hmm. you know, they, they build more and more and more and do more. Now, if, if someone wanted to get into this business today, I mean, you said the, the, the first one you built uh, back in the old barn, you built the wall yourself, et cetera. And uh, so if I wanted to get into the gym, rock, rock climbing gym business, is there someone I can go to to say, hey, design me a rock climbing gym? Yes. And any one of the wall building companies in the, in the world will take you step by step through the whole process Um, me having been in business for quite a while when I contacted these guys which was at that conference in Colorado uh, I said I have a I have a building plan I want you guys to tell me show me what what you can do for me and uh, so you you have a you had a shell of a building I had a shell of a building that I designed and I, I knew that I wanted a yoga space, and I knew I wanted a cafe, and I wanted fitness, and I wanted a classroom. So I, I took this shell in, in SketchUp, and I, I took it with me there. The guy downloaded it into his laptop, and he said, okay, let's start over here at the door, and I'll, I'll, design, you a, I'll design you a building. If you think you like it, then we'll talk price, and et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So much easier to do that today than it was when you were starting. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's one thing with your protractor and your graph paper, and it's another thing when the guy can plop it into his computer. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, it took an hour and 15 minutes to decide to, to make this building. And I had my daughter and uh, son-in-law on the phone with me, FaceTiming, and we, we went through the whole building, and we got done, and Nothing changed from, from that moment until these guys showed up and started putting it together. Wow. wow. Now, did you have any business background? Uh, no business background. None. And that was kind of interesting. And it, learning things the hard way. Um, but it was easier with a small gym with very low overhead. Um, you know, I was, I was leasing the premises Everything was taken care of. Minimal headaches. Opened at four, closed at ten. Easy peasy. But uh, once we move into a place like this, where the the stakes are are higher, as as they tell you in the climbing wall industry, bankers and lawyers learn to love them. <laughs> yeah. So the uh, so let's let's talk about the when when you came back from the Himalayas, and, and uh, the guy gave you his share of, of the, that original gym. Uh, what were some of the surprises that were like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? What were some of those <laughs> moments for you? Well, it first was procuring insurance to get back up and running again. And, you know, being the business being what it is, you know, you can't go very far without that. And so we... We dabbled around trying to get that up and running. And then once we were up and running, you know, because we loved it, it was, you know, we were there every night and, you know, we started to grow that community. Um, And it was only about three and a half years later when we lost our lease there. And so we were kind of running and volunteer help, uh, not well. I don't think we did a great job of, of anything. You know, but the climbing kind of spoke for itself, so it would draw people from all around. And we were the only game in upstate New York. You know, there was no Albany gyms, there was no Clifton Park gym. There was no. We were the only thing between New York City and Montreal. Mm-hmm. So people would stop here. It was, it was a destination. You know, if it started raining in the Adirondacks, you had a place to go inside climbing if you were, you know, if you were up there for a few days. Got, got it, <clears throat> got it. And then when you when you move from there. Um, and built your own gym, uh, literally, like you said, screwing the 
uh, fastening the, yeah, the, ply, by hand, the plywood, the plywood to the structure. Yeah. Yeah. So, what were what were some of the big challenges there for you? What's it was growing the business, being having it be a, a hobby or part time. You know, we just didn't have the time to put into it to to act, grow it like it should. Uh, it did take on a life of its own, and you know, it grew very gradually, but conclusively mm -hmm. and it led us to the point where right about the point where I retired from teaching I said yeah, we're overcrowded and I said well what about doing this and my wife who also retired at the same time said we should be traveling in Italy and we should be going here and we should be doing this and I said okay so we continued to do that and continued to run it as a, a, a side hustle as you said uh, and then in the mid 2000 2015 we said we got to do something either either end it or go big or stay at home yes yes and uh wife was unconvinced that that was a a good path you know she says you got a good thing just right. leave it but i wanted bigger better yeah yeah and here you are yeah so uh it's it seems like one of the key elements of this business uh, is building a community of, of sort of your customers, right? You're, yes. you're sort of building this community of customers. So what are some of the things you do to accomplish that? Well, our, our climbing team and our birthday parties are huge because a lot of people don't know who or what we are, despite everything we do on social media, despite the other, you know, we, we tried some of the other avenues of advertising, which, eh, you know, not, not so good. Um, but word of mouth seems, you know, and the mom network is, yes. is huge. And okay. so, you know, a birthday party here is, you know, 10 or 12 prospective members coming in here. And, you know, one or two aren't going to like anything. And then one or two are going to say, oh, man, I want to join the climbing team or whatever. And then, you know, the local climbers in the area, you know, we, kn we know most of them and the word of mouth. And, you know, we have guys coming down from Lake Placid now who, you know, it's right now it's too warm to ice climb, so they were in here this weekend in, in force, and, uh, you know, they come up from Albany because they get tired of climbing in the gym down there, so they're looking for something new. Right. So. Now, a period of time I, I, I worked in, uh, in the bicycle business, and um, there was a, a person I worked with and she was really, really good at sort of building community around this brand, you know, sort of. And she would do that with sort of events, uh, you know, the, where we would sponsor an event, uh, typically at some race or something. You know, we'd have a dinner or whatever. And uh, do you guys do things like that as uh, well? I mean, I, I'm thinking of other things besides the sort of parties that you do, et cetera, that, that, and, the, and the team, or is that basically the main focus? Th that's our main focus. I mean, we do have an adult climbing league, which is kind of like a golf league or a bowling oh, okay. league. It's, it's handicapped so that, you know, intermediate and beginning climbers can still compete with the big boys because, uh, you know, we, we score the climbs and, and we do raffles and, you know, we give stuff away and then we sit around and have a campfire and drink beer out by the, uh, the campfire afterwards. So, you know, that's part of our community, too. Yeah. So you're building this social element into it. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which helps to build that community, because I think in a lot of businesses, this sort of notion of building a community around it, sort of a grassroots group of folks who then help you propagate it is really important, particularly if it's something that is not on the tip of everyone's mouth. Right. Right. It's like, right. well, what is, what is that? People, you say, well, I, I went to Roxport, and they're like, well, what is that? Is that like a museum? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're hoping that that's not the case anymore. Yeah. You know, we'd like to think that we're we're out there, and that you know, social media is so important these days, and you know, we've kind of left the print media and the radio spots behind, just because they just don't seem to produce to huh? draw the. Yeah. And it, it's hard to measure that, what they bring in, too, yeah. as well. So how do you think about hiring staff for, for a business like this? We consider ourselves a, a teaching institution, and we have a very close relationship with SUNY and the Adventure Sports Program at SUNY. Uh, back in the old days, I used volunteers. That didn't work very well. Then I hired good climbers. That didn't work real well. 
and uh, and right about the time I retired from Queensbury, I became involved with SUNY Adirondacks Adventure Sports Program. And the more I got involved with it, the more I saw that I needed to know not only about the climbing process, but training people to uh, train the, uh, the climbing process. So I began, I taught all of the climbing classes, so I would cherry pick what I thought were the best facilitators, not necessarily the best climbers, but the best facilitators, the people who had the best personality, people personality. And that, that was huge because that's what made the business grow in Rocksport 2.0. And now I'm doing the same thing. I'm just picking those yeah. best ones and saying, you know, here's, here's what we can do. We're part-time, you know, so it's they trade climbing and minimum wage for being part of our yeah. staff. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you brought up the notion of, of hiring around personality. I think of the 67 or 68 podcasts we've done and of the business folks we've talked to, I would say 80 to 90 percent of them say that exact same thing. I can, I can train someone to do the job, but I can't train their personality. <laughs> so I, I, look per, I look for personality. I look for those interpersonal skills, their ability to communicate, et cetera. And if that fits, I'm confident that I can, I can teach them the other part of the job. So that's a real important lesson, I think. Yeah, and one that I didn't learn soon enough. Yeah. I wish I'd learned sooner, I, I think, would be my... Yeah. yeah oftentimes, people, people do exactly what you did, is they, let me go find the best climber. Let me go find the best nerdy engineer. Let me go find the best snowboarder. Well, uh, yes. that may not be <laughs> the best teacher. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, with, with moms bringing little kids in here, they want... There's certain personalities that attract them. Sure. And yeah, yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, and, and that teacher needs to be both good with the seven-year-old and with the mom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? Very so that's important. a dynamic set of skills yeah. right there. Yes. <laughs> wide, uh, wide range. That's right. That's right. So uh, what uh, if you reflect – oh, I'm sorry – and, and during this time that you've, you've had these businesses, has anyone knocked on the door and said, hey, Tom, I'd like to buy this from you? No. I'm hoping that's going to be the case uh, here pretty soon. Oh, okay. You know, as, as we get a little bit older, we're in a terminal glide of our climbing career. There's still some places I want to go to. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, and this, this has been, for the last two and a half years, it's been kind of an anchor. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just starting to – I've got a climbing trip to Morocco coming up in a month and a half, so I'm looking forward to, to that. And then who knows from there. Maybe yeah. we'll go back to Yosemite and climb El Cap again or something. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, and, so if you reflect back on uh, – so when was the first gym? When, what year was that? 1992. 1992. So if you reflect back on uh, 30 years almost – uh, what are some of the lessons that, that you've learned? What are some of the things, uh, in addition to the personality thing we just talked about, hiring folks, what are some other things that you said, gosh, I wish I knew that when I was starting? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. I wish I'd had the foresight to take some business classes at, at SUNY. I, I, I had that opportunity, but things were unfolding way too fast, you know, beyond my control, so that, you know, if I'd had a little bit more savvy, I could have eliminated a lot of those mistakes as they went along. Yeah. Did you ever think about bringing in a partner or a hiring a consultant to help you with some of those well, things? Well, when I first took it over in 92, I was with another guy, and that turned out to be a painful, horrible experience. And it killed our friendship, and it almost killed the business. And mm. so uh, I just finally, he was, you know, he lived out down the, the highway here a little ways, and it was hard for him to get up and, you know, take care of his end of business. So I finally just said, why don't I just buy you out? And, yeah. Um, yeah, partnerships are challenging. Yeah, you know, that's why I'm always amazed. Like when when like a rock and roll band has been together for thirty <laughs> or forty years. Yeah, I'm like, thinking, oh my gosh, how do they do that? I know. You know, Especially like the Rolling when you Stones. Got six yeah, I was just going to say right? those guys have been together as long as I've been alive, practically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. somehow they do it. You know, so they're pretty rare. The point is, 
Partnerships are pretty, pretty rare, successful ones. Many of them blow up. Yeah. Yeah, and, and ours did, and, you know, I lost a friendship as, yeah. re, as a result of that. Um, you know, I have investors now as this project blossomed here. Uh, we were going to come up short in the financial end, so I, I brought in some investors, and uh, I have my meeting Wednesday night with them, and that, that ought to be ought to be fun. So but you do have so you do have sort of partner financial partners. Fin- in this. Yes. So you, it wasn't a bank that financed this. It, uh, well, uh, there's quite a bit of bank involved, okay. but uh, in addition to the bank, there's right. individuals who yes. who participated in yes. its financing. And both of them had children who came through the system and saw how wonderful it is. Uh, one of our investors, their son, made the U.S. climbing team last year. Oh, wow. And went to the world competition in, uh, not the Ukraine, uh, maybe it was. And he started here. And he, he started with a birthday party here. In fact, we still have his picture of that first birthday. Uh, I have a postcard. We had postcard our party cards made of him climbing as a 12-year-old. Now he's a senior in high school, and he's he can climb everything in the gym up and down. He's, he's wow, uncommonly strong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So he's training. He's training right now for the spring. He he won't make the Olympics, but uh, he'll he'll place well in the in the yeah. national. You know, I just had this uh, conversation earlier this week with uh, an individual who's been on the podcast, and this was a follow-on conversation, and they were looking for investors. And, and our conversation revolved around, you know, sometimes the, your best investors are your customers, people who've had a great experience in your business, you know, as a customer, and, you know, they, for whatever reason, they, they really latch on to it. All right. Right. I mean, this one guy stood in the door when he told one of my staff people, he said, hey, you look in the, this place is way too crowded. Are you looking to expand? I'd be interested. And from there, we developed a relationship. Yeah. And then the other one with the, uh, the, with the son who competes. And those, they became our two investors. Yeah, yeah that's great. Uh, so what other lessons, what other things, gee, I wish I would have known when I was uh, 30 years younger? It always costs three times as much and takes four times as long to accomplish what you need to do. Um, I don't know about that one, Bella. Yeah. I, well, those, that's some good advice, right? Higher personality, right? In this business, I think that the personnel aspect of yeah. things and and you know the training has become so it used to be you just hand the front door key to the person and okay and it it's not like that anymore you yeah know, with yeah wow. the, way, the way things are in the climbing gym insurance industry yeah yeah well tom uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about the business here uh is there anything uh, i didn't ask you that i should have Anything else you want to add to this We're open seven days. No. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Give it the plug. So, well, yeah, we're open like 360, 362 days a year. So yeah. it's it's a life change. Let, come in and let us change your life. Yeah, well, and I can, I can you know, my son, who worked for you yes. back in, in the older gym, uh, got me roped into this. and Literally. Uh, yeah, literally. And uh, it has turned out, now we started here again. Uh, he finally has... Uh, come up for air from having two little girls and he brings one of them here to climb and I will say as a parent it's been a great way for me to spend some time with my son you know he climbs much better than I do of course but it you know, doesn't matter it doesn't matter that's the point it doesn't right matter it doesn't matter it for it does have that family social element because uh, there's not a lot of things that you can do with your kids right they're few and far between uh, and uh, this has turned out to be a nice one for that. It's, there's something about tying into the end of the rope with with another person, and and knowing that your life is going to be in their hands, and vice versa, for the next you know ten minutes or so. Right. And whether you're indoors or outdoors, there's there's something about that connection that's that transcends the actual Absolutely. process of tying yeah. in. It's. It's yeah. one of the things that drew me to the sport right from the first day that I tied into the end of the rope in 1972. God, 
So. Yeah. And, and my other son was out from Rhode Island, and him and his wife were here, and we climbed. And here again, it was actually both my sons were here. All of us were here that day, and it was this yeah. great sort of family activity, which oftentimes when you think about rock climbing, you don't think of that. You think of this hanging off the side, hanging off the side of a cliff by yourself, (laughs) you know, and and I think that's one of the nice things about the gym is that it gives you that ability to do it on a rainy Saturday or a rainy afternoon. So great. Well, thanks again, Tom, for everything. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about this. It's a really fascinating and interesting journey you've had. Well, thank you very much. And I look forward to climbing with you on a regular basis now that you're one of our I remember so yeah. well. So. And I'm retired. <laughs> yeah, and retired with me. So yeah. good. Excellent. Yep. Thanks again, Tom. All right. Bela, this was a great interview. It was quite the cool history lesson on the evolution of indoor rock climbing. Uh, and again, another interesting story of somebody who turned a passion into a business. What were your takeaways from this interview? So I think one of the interesting things here was uh, how for Tom, this started out as uh, a side hustle. Actually, let me take a further step back. He was climbing with some friends, and it was during this climbing expedition, uh, outdoor climbing, that is, uh, and uh, it was during that where someone said, hey, I have this business. Tom was familiar with it. Do you want it? <laughs> I've had enough of it. And, and that's sort of what got Tom into it. Um, but he's really, really passionate. I mean, his, his passion is climbing predominantly outdoor climbing. He's climbed all over the world. And uh, here was an opportunity for him to sort of start this as what we call today a side hustle. And it started out as a side hustle. He was a full-time teacher, a high school teacher, and he was doing this, uh, you know, sort of nights and weekends. And it kept growing and steadily growing sort of organically. uh, And it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then there was a point a number of years ago where he retired from full-time teaching um, and made this kind of his uh, full-time uh, retirement gig. And uh, he's been very successful at it. Um, and this is also an example of where he was sort of in the right place at the right time because he's sort of riding the indoor climbing wave. And, uh, you know, that's wonderful if you're in business and uh, to be able to take advantage of that. And uh, so I think he's done a really good job at that. And it's, it's another great example of, like many of the entrepreneurs we've interviewed in this unconventional path, where they take their passion and they figure out a way to turn it into uh, part of their livelihood. And I think Tom's a great example of that. And a guy that had no business training. And by his own admission, right, it really cost him some, made some mistakes, right? But I loved how... You know, yeah, he didn't create the improved perception among people that rock climbing was safe and socially acceptable, right? He was in on it when it was edgy, right? But I like how he adapted his business to the new market. And he was able to, instead of holding on to kind of this old model of, okay, this is edgy, right? That he was able to adapt to birthday parties and, right, people of all ages doing this. And I thought that was this really cool kind of way to evolve as the market evolved. And yeah, you might say, ah, oh, there was luck. But, you know, for every person like Tom who adapted, I'm sure there was some people who didn't adapt um, and didn't respond to well to having the right instructors for little kids and dealing with the parents and all these things. So I, I think that was really a, a cool uh, transition that he made that and he evolved with the, the, the market. Um, and I think this is applicable to a lot of different businesses when you think about it is where do you see the trends, right? Where, okay, right now there's some barriers, but we see that these barriers may erode over time. Um, and like youth football is another great example right now, right? I wouldn't, if I had kids, I wouldn't let my kids play youth football right now, knowing what we know about head injuries. But is there going to be a resurgence as technology gets better and they change the rules, right? And maybe that's not the greatest example, but I think there's lots of things where people say, oh, this isn't safe or this is too edgy for me. And kind of as people get accustomed to it, it becomes more mainstream. I mean, a lot of yeah. foods has been like this, right? Molecular gastronomy, right? At first, like people were like, no way, I don't want chemistry in my food, right? But now like sous vide cooking is part of the mainstream and people buy little devices at home to make this stuff work. So maybe that's a better example. And when is the right time to get in as the trends change? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I think with with many businesses, you know, when when Tom first started this, or when indoor rock climbing first started, it was basically uh, the geek. It was the rock climbing geeks, mm-hmm. and those were the only folks that came through the door. <clears throat> and with many businesses, unfortunately, there's not enough of them <laughs> to make a val of a solid business out of it. So you got to figure out how to, how to expand your your market, how to expand your customer base, and sort of how to grow the community. And I think this notion of, you know, birthday parties for kids. uh, And as Tom said in his story, you know, we have a birthday party with 15, 20 kids and two or three of them. We'll see. We'll see. And, you know, they'll be coming back and keep coming back. Mm -hmm. So he's really growing his market organically. And I think that's a great lesson when we think about entering new markets. Um, There are people who might be passionate about what you do, whether it be coffee or or, or, you know, craft beer or whatever, um, oftentimes, particularly when you're in, in sort of uh, not greatly populated regions of the world, uh, there's just not enough people uh, in the, who existingly want to get that, who exist today, who want to who have that product or service. So you got to figure out how to grow it and how do you introduce it? How do you build a community around it? How do you get people to want to keep coming back? And I think as we all know, most businesses fail um, within the first six years. Uh, it's something like a very large percentage, 80 some odd percent fail within the first 60, six years. And Tom's been around for 20 plus. So it's a real statement to his ability to sort of help change and modify and grow the business uh, as times changed, as his market has changed. Um, and uh, make it into a uh, a very viable and stable business. And an important point, Bela, he didn't lose the hardcore market, right? He said, oh, we had this hardcore, I forget where exactly they're from, and they still come. So, you know, it's like you grow into these new customers, but if you can also maintain your legitimacy with your core customer group, I mean, that's remarkable, right? And that is um, a cool testament, I think, to the business that Tom's, that Tom's yeah. built. Now, I got another question for you, because... This is kind of an interesting, this transition from the side gig into a retirement income stream. And given uncertainty about Social Security and kind of this whole economic uncertainty that retirees are facing and living longer and all this stuff, I'm really interested now, now that you and I are kind of getting up in the in the age bracket here, so maybe some of our younger listeners won't be so interested, but it might be something for them to keep in mind downstream. But is entrepreneurship a valid way to kind of ease into retirement where, okay, I can retire when I'm 65 and then I have this side gig that I turn into a business from 65 to 72 and then max out my, when I take my social security, right? Because I've done this cool thing and turned a passion to a business. So might there be this kind of niche of retirees that are too young to stop working and kind of fill this seven years or whatever it is, right? Between when you can start taking social security and when you max out your benefits, I don't know. Any thoughts? Any anything there that might say, "Yeah, this is the next big trend," and you and I should write an article about this? Well, Mike, I think it's a great observation, and I and I think back. Uh, I, I remember there was a period of time when I was in sort of my forties, uh, uh, late forties, where a, a bunch of my friends who were the same age were all buying rental properties, and that was going to be their sort of retirement income. Um, because you know they were going to buy the rental properties uh, and then use that rental income as it as it builds over the years um, to to be their retirement nest egg. And I will tell you that every one of them I met said being in the rental business was awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. They hated it, and the only reason they were doing it was for this retirement income. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. I think um, you know the ability to take what you really like to do. Uh, 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 your passion and turn that into some sort of income stream, uh, uh, whether it be for retirement or, or not, uh, I think is sort of a much more uh, interesting path. And it was clear in, in my conversation with Tom that he has energy about this. He has passion about it. Uh, and, and he's really into it. Uh, and I never got that feeling from any of my, 
the friends that I had who got into you know, a rental property. You're right, right. Yeah, we're landlords. It's a tough they business. I got a lot of friends it. that are landlords, and it's a tough business. And yeah. it's not the way you want to re- spend your retirement. But yeah, if you can pick something that you're passionate about, that you enjoy everything about, and do that on like a seven-year kind of, that's your time horizon, I love this idea. Yeah, and I and I think that, um, you know, given given what's going on in the world today and your ability to uh, do things and start things and how segmented the market has gotten, right? There are little niches all over the place and, and your opportunity to find one of those niches, you know, and sort of elbow your way into it uh, and, and start something. I think today it's, it's unprecedented. I don't think the, the time has ever been better to be able to do something like that. And out of the 70 or some odd people we've interviewed so far, I think at least half of them fit that category, right? Where they've taken this really small kind of cool niche um, and grow it. And I think that if you're in kind of the second half of your career, this is a cool path to think about. And if you're 22 and listening, it's like, okay, you know, let me keep my options open. And let me think about this because this is a nice way to to kind of plan forward and to build your network and to develop ideas with this eye on, okay, maybe I want the security and the certainty of a, of a, of a more traditional job, more traditional career. But if I have these interests and I'm somebody who's listening to our podcast, right, that has some interest in being innovative or being entrepreneurial, this is kind of a neat way to express that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing I thought was really interesting, uh, in his business model is this notion of, uh, uh I think he said, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I think he said all his employees are part-time employees. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, um, he pays them, but there's also sort of an exchange for for sort of free climbing uh, and the mm-hmm. ability to use the facility. And bartering, um, yeah, there's sort of this bartering process, um, and that's part of the compensation package, right? And and um, I think it's working for him really well. Uh, and so, do you think something like that is is valuable in sort of other industries and uh, as well, Mike? Yeah, you know. We live in uncertain times and this whole gig economy and this whole idea of being a contractor and being a digital nomad and all these interesting trends that um, I've been talking with people about and seeing um, is interesting. It's an interesting model. And I think that it can be very disenfranchising and very disempowering to not be connected to your workplace uh, and be kind of this flexible part-time worker. But my real hunch is, is that for some of these people that want to augment their income, yeah, you can drive for Uber or Lyft or, yeah, you can deliver to DoorDash or whatever. But if you can do something like work for a person like Tom who, yeah, maybe it's only a minimum wage, but you get to hang around with other people that share your passion. You get in exchange, for, you know, some barter, some 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 free services or goods that has value to you. And this might be a way to kind of counter some of these these issues of engagement and attachment and identity that I think some of these people who are working in the gig economy get. Um, it doesn't solve issues of health insurance and benefits and retirement and things that are sticky issues. But it's kind of a neat middle ground when you think about some of the problems that the gig economy is is uh, un- uncovering. And this is maybe a neat way, I think, to move forward. It's, just, it's a bartering. It's an old idea. Um, and it's been around for a long time. I mean, I remember when I was uh, in college and I was working as an apprentice meat cutter. Um, yeah, I was making minimum wage, but I was getting the markdown discount on steaks that were about to expire. And it wasn't that I was getting anything for necessarily for free, but I was getting a really good deal because we had first first dibs on these things. So I was eating really well. And as a college student, I mean, that's kind of important that, you know, my classmates are all eating from the cafeteria and I'm grilling two inch porterhouse steaks. <laughs> right. I mean, I was a popular guy. I won't mention the beer that went with that because that was a whole different story for another time. But this idea of a barter economy to augment a minimum wage type of a gig work, I think is a really cool thing to think about for both business owners and people that are looking for jobs, because there are some rules, obviously, here that things you can and can't do, but it's worth asking and it's worth having a conversation with people, finding a dedicated workforce and giving them something of value um, to make uh, this these these kind of contingent relationships work, I think is a cool idea. Yeah. Or am I out of my mind? 
No, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great observation, Mike. And, and, I, and I think there's a good lesson there uh, for folks. And, and like you mentioned, there are some rules and regulations about all that kind of stuff. And you got to stay within the, within the foul lines of that, within the boundaries. Um, but I think it's a great, great thing to uh, investigate and look at if it's appropriate for your endeavor or not. You know, the other thing I thought was really interesting is sort of how his hiring uh, selection process changed. He said in the beginning when he was hiring folks, he was hiring the best climbers um, who, who could also, you know, really climb in, in his facility. And, but, but now he came to the realization that maybe as his market changed and as he was having more birthday parties for kids, um, people's personalities, people's ability to interact with customers, um, customer service, et cetera, becomes a much more important vector uh, in the hiring equation than it was in the past. Uh, and we've seen this uh, in other industries as well. Uh, and I think Tom said something like, you know, you can, you can sort of teach somebody how to climb and the rudimentary stuff about climbing, uh, but their personality is much harder for, the, for you to teach them how to improve that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I go beyond, I mean, personality obviously is an important psychological contract and there's been lots of research on it, but I like to even push farther and to get business owners and people who are doing hiring um, to really think about the knowledge and the skills that um, that are co- components of that, because um, things like teaching skills, well, that's good listening. That's the ability to explain complicated things simply. That's um, giving, being able to give constructive and positive feedback. Um, that's able to problem solve. So there's actually some specific things that could be, go beyond having a nice and cheery personality, or they're uh, they're punctual, or they're open minded, right? That I think you can even do yourself a favor and start to be even more specific. So I agree with the general truth that there's a broader set of skills other than technical skills that are important. But the more uh, employers or entrepreneurs can identify what those are, and during an interview, ask for a sample or do a, a work sample, or to ask uh, people to solve applied problems that demonstrate these skills. Now you can really start to make your HR system hum, even if you're a small business, right? So you've got a specific set of very descriptive um, ta- uh, skills and abilities that people have. You give people a reasonable chance to show that they have these skills, both through their resume and during the interview process, and you have a way to compare candidates on this so that you can choose the candidate that beyond just saying they have a good personality, but okay, this person listened most carefully during the problem-solving set. They explained this behavior better. They provided better feedback in the video that I showed them during the interview. Uh, They dealt with the video of the angry parent. Uh, They were able to diffuse tension better and to offer better customer service. I think they go to, to, I totally agree that Hiring for this idea of personality is important, but I think it's more than personality. And I think there's actually discrete knowledge and skills that you can uh, recruit for, right? Put it in the job ad, right? Select for it, and you can then evaluate your candidates in a more direct way um, using this more refined set of terms. So this could be a whole other podcast we could talk about, but I have really strong and and positive in a positive way, but really strong feelings about um, how to hire the best people, especially when you're a startup. And I've learned a lot of this the hard way too, so in the startups that I've been involved in. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points, Mike. You articulated that very well. Uh, and, and I think the, uh, the opportunity to make this into a process for any business by identifying the key parameters and characteristics that you're looking for, and then make that part of the selection process, um, is, is a real good piece of advice. Cool. Well, what do you think? Should we wrap it up? I think so. All Let's right. do that. So, all right. Well, listeners, we're happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week. Uh, we hope you have found the last hour or so interesting and thought-provoking. Uh, at this point, we'd like to once again thank Phillips Lytle for sponsoring our podcast. Bela, you and I both know that the attorneys at Philip Lytle think like entrepreneurs. They take a pragmatic approach to getting things done, and they spot issues before they become problems. So we're both really comfortable uh, telling listeners that if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, Whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, we confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with them? For more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner, either at 518-618-1225, or you can reach Rich directly via email from his firm's website 
at philipslidle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. Great. Thanks, Bela. And thanks to listeners for joining us this week. If you have any questions about what we've discussed today, if you have suggestions about topics or potential guests, please do feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. So we've had a lot of great guests in the pipeline, so I hope you stay with us. And please do subscribe if you haven't already. Signing off from upstate New York. Hey, see you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. Thanks for this, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. From over here in Münster, Germany, have a great week, everybody.